All right, so I'm live with Sam Kuypers for the second time. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me back. That's my pleasure. I am a little concerned, though, because I tried to Google your name to get some dirt on you before the podcast, and uh, the the first thing I found is uh, this title here. It's on some online magazine of some sort, and it says, Sam Kuypers jailed for violent robbery attempt at shopping Addington Street. And uh, so I thought I would just read a little from this and then you can defend yourself, if that's all right with you. Um, (laughs) A brave shop worker had his eyes gouged and was attacked with a glass bottle as he fought off a man attempting to raid a Londis store. And apparently you forced yourself behind the counter and the violent thug pushed the shop worker out of the way and attempted to open the till by hitting it. But despite verbal threats, the victim refused to help Kuypers and he left with nothing. So um, this was uh, this summer in May, and I thought maybe you could just tell me a little bit what, what's going on there, man. What um, you dropped out of uh, of Oxford, or what's going on? Uh, this is the other Oxford Sam Kuypers. Yeah, we often get confused. He's he's a bit violent, and oh right, yeah, he he doesn't he doesn't resolve his problems through discussion. He just you know he he gets out the bottle and then tries to rob whatever it was that he tried to rob was it the liquor store or something. Also, the uh, picture. I, I remember seeing this article well back, and uh, it's, it's just the strangest picture. It's not your of this best photo, guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah, great. That sent to me a couple of times. Uh, yeah, it's, it's you should strange. use that as your Twitter Twitter picture. That'd yeah. be great. <laughs> yeah, he looks very right. confused. The poor fellow. Yeah, so I now go by Samuel Capers so to distinguish the two of us. So if you, if you right. read my papers or something, it'll say Samuel Kuypers, and you know, you know, it's not the the famous grocery store rubber or liquor store rubber. <laughs> it's it's the it's the fist, it's Sam Kuypers. I'm still not persuaded, Samuel, but uh, um, I'll take that into account. Yeah, there's all kinds of interesting questions about identity and stuff. I guess, <laughs> like how how, yeah. how are we do do we really have the same consciousness anyway? And it doesn't matter that he is. Samuel Kuypers, mm. or I am Samuel Kuypers and he's Sam Kuypers or something. Uh, I don't know. Or, or there's no self. Try, yeah, I guess there's no self. In there yeah, forward. right, right. So you're trying to invoke some sort of Eastern Adaita Vedanta or something? I, uh, the never... Vedanta, the Indian philosophy of uh, one big consciousness, the uh, Advaita Vedanta, I think it's called. Yeah. One big yeah. consciousness, the Brahman, the big self. We're all one. So yes. we, in, in essence, we all robbed that store in uh, Addington Street. <laughs> yeah, as, as Harris would say, there's only consciousness in its content. So in, in the most fundamental <laughs> sense, we're all Sam Kuypers. I feel like we've already set the intellectual standard for this podcast in a way that I'm very happy about. <laughs> so if if someone is listening to this podcast for the first time after being recommended to do so, this is what you get. Please become a Patreon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It actually reminds me of a film that I never get the title of. It's about a man who gets in a car crash and then wakes up and finds that he's been replaced by another man who is exactly who has his name and who has taken like his place in his life. So, you know, he goes to his wife and his wife denies that uh, she's ever been married to uh, the guy in the car crash. And mm. it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, maybe this maybe this has happened to me secretly, and I just wasn't even aware of it. Yeah, that sounds like a very elaborate way to try to get a divorce. 
Um. <laughs> it's it's an interesting film. It's kind of it's one of those action films that actually has a somewhat philosophical plot, where you have to you know there is a real question of what has happened to this guy's identity, and you know how how do they resolve this? I, I won't spoil the film. I, I forget what the name is. As I said, it's like un unknown or something. Oh, yeah, it's unknown with. Liam Nielsen, Liam Neeson. Oh, of course, Liam Neeson. of course, yeah. Okay, that sounds interesting. I'll try to check that out after we've finished this conversation here. All right, no. So uh, on a slightly more serious note, then Sam, what what have you really been up to uh, in your doctorate program right now? Uh, and try to not to use too too many highfalutin uh, words there for for my sake, please. Yeah. So I have recently. Uh, together with David Deutsch, put a paper in the archive about uh, many worlds. And I'm also yeah, continuing my work on, on foundations of quantum theory. I, uh, I actually had a, a, another recent podcast with Logan, in which I kind of talk about some of my other research, which was fun. Mm. And right. yeah, so mainly working on quantum theory and foundations of quantum theory. That's really cool. Yeah. I, 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 so, so the paper was already out? It's not yet being published. It's a preprint, and uh, but I hope to publish ah. it at, at some point in the future. Yeah, but at, at the moment you can find it on the archive, which is like a preprint website for physicists. It's basically any paper that you want to read in physics is on that website, which is kind of amazing. That's cool. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Uh, I would like you to to send me the link later so I can read it and pretend I understood anything. Um, yeah, thanks. But um, and I I think we can um, we we might actually touch on because I I want this conversation to be a little more free flowing and I uh, we touched base briefly yesterday about some ideas there and uh, yeah we might touch on the multiverse a little bit in uh, in a specific context here later on yes. but um yeah so when we spoke yesterday you said that you had been diving into some old popper again and I think you mentioned the myth of the framework as the book you had been focusing on. And um, yeah, you, you, you said you wanted to talk about the ontology of problems, the, the salience of the problem situation in different contexts here. And I, I um, yeah, there are a few different angles we could start from. So if you have a preference there, you're, feel free to jump in. Otherwise, I'll, I'll direct you. So I recently went back to Myth of the Framework, which is a great book. And because we've been talking about so in the last podcast, we talked about determinism and physics and all mm. of those topics. I thought it would be interesting to, to dive into that a bit again and consider it from yeah, the angle of kind of preparing epistemology. For, for example, if you have to explain what a scientist is doing or what, what a or really any organism that is creating knowledge is doing is they're, they're solving problems. They have a particular problem situation and they try to make progress on that problem situation. And, and if you want to describe kind of faithfully what is happening to the system or what has happened to that system, so if you want to faithfully describe what has happened to the scientist, you must describe his problem situation and how he has tried to ta tackle it. Could you just briefly uh, uh, give us a little definition uh, of, of how you're using problem situation here for people who might not be as versed in the Popperian terminology? So Popper used this phrase, the problem situation, which is really just a way of saying that a person or even an organism in general can have a set of problems that he is faced with at a particular time. So mm. 
at the moment you could say that physicists have in their problem situation the problem of how to unify quantum theory and gravity and that is a problem that they have uh, and that exists and in a sense yeah i think what i want to say here is that the, the problem really exists there is a real sense in which physicists are faced with that problem and likewise uh, organisms can also be faced with problems genes can be faced with problems problems of replication and trying to replicate better than other genes and the the problem situation is the starting point of a theory of, of knowledge creation so in the case of quantum gravity in the case of physicists and quantum gravity and trying to unify quantum theory and general relativity the problem is that uh, those two theories cannot be unified at the moment and, and yet physicists think that there are good reasons why they should be unifiable or why there should be a deeper theory that that explains both gravity and quantum mechanics and it is from there that scientists then kind of conjecture explanations, which they subject to criticism and then hope to use in order to solve their problem with. So the problem situation is, is the, the sum total of all of these problems that a person might be faced with. And so in, in the terms of, let's say, any organism or any gene maybe, uh, is even more appropriate. The problem situation is, it, 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 in a very broad sense, like you said, it's to replicate, but it's more uh, accurate to use it for the specifics because there, there's that is might be the overarching purpose. But the problem situation is more accurately defined as the specific problems that the gene faces uh, to replicate in a certain niche. Yeah. So the the gene will try to outcompete other genes in the gene pool. And they, those genes are part of the problem situation. So you, you consider a particular gene, then it is competing against other genes. So you might say that the other genes are part of the problem situation, just like the environment is. And mm -hmm. it is trying to outcompete those other genes, which is what you just said now, that they're trying to replicate better than other genes in the gene pool. But that requires that they solve specific problems, like they might need to encode knowledge about how to eat and digest other animals. So a gene in a wolf might encode some, some knowledge about how that wolf uh, can digest the meat of a rabbit. And it has that knowledge because the, the genes faced a problem situation at some point in the past. Uh, and, and in order to replicate better than the other genes in the gene pool, they, they were forced to uh, solve this problem of how to digest rabbit meat or rather that was one of the solutions that was apparently available to that gene and it is it's very interesting to think about the dynamics of these kinds of systems so as, as a physicist I, I tend to kind of think about systems as consisting of particles or more fundamental constituents and and then you think about how those particles evolve according to equations of motion and initial conditions and and the, and again I think this, this is what we talked about last time on the podcast and I wanted to, to show or to, to talk with you about how that worldview kind of breaks down when you're talking about people and knowledge creating entities like genes. And the, the reason it breaks down is because of, uh, the, the evolution of, of genes in a gene pool is, is I think, only describable in terms of uh, the problem situation. And in some sense, the the environment and, and physics itself is part of the problem situation that the genes are trying to solve. And the same, and the same for people. People also uh, have 
a problem situation. And the, the way to describe what happens to people is that they try to solve problems and that some of the problems that they are faced with are due to their environment or due to physics. And in the case of genes, there's this interesting question of when, when has a gene solved a problem? When has it changed the problem situation? And the answer is that is determined by the problem situation in some, in some sense. It's, the problem situation is a, is a real objective thing. It's a real objective situation. And it's only when the gene has found a solution to one of the problems in the problem situation that it can actually replicate better, for example. So it's the problem situation that determines whether or not a solution has been found. And in a way, the and also when a, a gene solves a particular problem, and it's, it has changed the problem situation. So the proper myth of the framework has kind of stresses, I think not, 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 just myth, sorry, not just the myth of the framework, but also in other books, he stresses that we start and end with problems. So we start with a problem situation and then through conjecturing solutions to our problems, we change the problem situation into a new one. And in that sense, you can think of the evolution of a set of genes as accompanied by the evolution of a problem situation. And, and the, the kind of fundamental point I'm trying to make here is that it, this, this forces upon us a kind of new or perhaps already familiar view, but in a more fundamental way, which is that the, what is happening to the genes is not ad adequately explained by simply the fundamental equations of motion. It's, it's explained by how the problem situation of those genes evolve and, and in what sense the genes are able to solve the problems that arise when it's trying to replicate. Of which, again, the, the, the fundamental physics might be part of that problem situation. Yeah, I think that's a, uh, an especially interesting point. That yeah, in, instead of being the driver of yeah the evolution itself, uh, as as many people want to explain it, the reductive way, which we talked about last time, you're saying that there might be, or you're saying it is a better level of explanation. Maybe the only plausible mode of explanation for what's actually going on is a higher explanation, an emergent explanation of yeah the the particular problem situation yes yeah i i think that in, in case especially in the case of people that yes the fundamental explanation of what people do is that they are knowledge creators that they are creating knowledge and in so doing kind of evolving their problem situation they are producing new ideas and solving problems which include problems in their environment which include problems with which physics presents them with and like physics is one of the things that could be a problem for example we might think it's a problem that would like to go to the moon and we weren't able to do so until we built rockets and then we were able to go to the moon so in that case going to the moon was a problem that physics presented us with we had to find a solution to that problem and we have done so and we, we can now go to the moon and it is in that sense that kind of physics plays a role for people. Physics is a is part of the problem situation that people are faced with. Yes, but you're putting epistemology and knowledge creation at the center of 
how to explain what's going on here. Yes, I think it's, it's kind of interesting to, to take seriously this idea that there are problems and that there are theories in there. Like problems are very weird things if you think about them. For example, you might not want to have a problem. You might not want to have the flu, say, and yet there are times when you have the flu and you're then forced to deal with the problem of having flu. You don't always choose to have problems, which mm -hmm. is, I think, part of why they're objective. Like you cannot just say, oh, okay, I'll, I'll choose to not have the flu today. You sometimes problems are, are forced upon you. And you cannot like deny that they are, that they exist for you because uh, that, that will only create more problems. <laughs> you, you might uh, become delusional and that, that brings more problems with it. Yeah. And yeah, I th it's, it's very interesting to, to view the world in, in, through this lens of problems and, and kind of evolving problems. Because as I said, the, Popper emphasized that when we create new knowledge, we don't end up in a problemless situation. We always end up with new problems, with, with problems that are more fundamental, more interesting. And it's kind of the driving force of all knowledge creation. And it's also interesting to think that, they, that in a sense, problems weren't there at the start of the universe. Like there weren't any people, there weren't any genes, there was nothing that was creating knowledge. And problems came about when life came about. That was the start mm -hmm. of the problem situation there was a time when there were no problems and and that was the worst time in a way but could you say then that the problem was that there were no problems but well there was there was nothing that faced that problem you couldn't point at anything in the world that had that problem and i mean it it's it, it would be a problem for us now for example for, for people now it would be a problem if there were no more people tomorrow that's because we would stop existing we'd have to die out for that and that's a thing that we wouldn't like and and that is a, another issue for us to solve i mean it's so counterintuitive the whole idea that that without problems no progress because the way it's conventionally used is in terms of what you said there with the flu things that are inherently annoying or, or things that we don't like and i think we've come we've become so accustomed within this subculture to think of problems as something good and something that can be intriguing and interesting. Yes. But I don't think that is um, ubiquitous yet in the culture. But but I think that that could be a very nice, um, e even if you're facing the, the less fun problems, I think having that view of problems in general uh, as room for improvement, that's what they are, uh, is, is very uplifting and uh, empowering. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, the reason why we have an economy is because there are problems that, that we would like to solve through the problems of the kind. So there's, there's one set of problems, which is that, say, I have stuff that I do not want as much as you want to have it, and we can trade it. And yeah. uh, but more generally, like, for example, if having the flu, I'd rather not have the flu. Uh, if, if possible, I would like hmm. to pay money to not have the flu. So that means that someone else can uh, make a living trying to solve that issue for me. Uh, and whereas if, if no one had any problems, then there wouldn't really be any need for an economy. There would, there would just be, that would be a static world. Nothing would need to happen if, uh, if there was no one to have any problems. I actually had a discussion with a colleague the other day and he, I tried to explain just in very basic terms, the idea of fallibilism and how we can never justify our knowledge and, and, uh, hence 
since we can't ever get to the final truth, we can always make infinite progress, and the, the, that's a hopeful thing. But he he thought that that was depressing, and thought that why wouldn't it be better if even if it's not possible? Well, why wouldn't it be better if we just had all the answers already? And <laughs> yes. uh, I I guess in the I, I mean I get that intuition because. It feels like, okay, but but it's fun to work on these solutions. But yeah, couldn't we just have fun not having the flu, not have any of those problems and just do whatever we want? But I guess that is uh, having a, a completely different view of what human minds are. And if you buy into the idea that joy is produced by creating knowledge, then I suppose you couldn't um, you couldn't have a brave new world scenario, a la Huxley, where everyone is just blissfully drugged and uh and content yeah yeah here here uh again a world in which there were no problems would be a world in which no one needed to do anything for example you might imagine that in a world without problems you could just sit on the couch and watch television but there, there's no reason to watch television because you don't have the problem of wanting to understand uh what's on tv there's, there's nothing there's nothing new to learn in that world there's nothing that needs to be done in that world because uh, if something needed to be done then that would be a problem and in this idealized situation we're already assuming that no one has any problems so yeah that that would be like death there, there would be no point to anything but that but that's interesting to me then because i used to be um, into eastern philosophy that's that was my entry point to philosophy in general and there is a tendency there uh, within certain frameworks to strive for enlightenment or nirvana or whatever you want to call it, which uh, I guess can be interpreted in, in a multitude of ways. But one of the ways is where you have reached what sounds like a problem-free state in the sense of you realize that ultimately nothing matters. There's no, there are no musts whatsoever. And from that complete contentment, uh, you can still be inspired to do things, but there is no no pull, no uh, like pull, no pull in a negative sense, no friction, no pressure, no conflict. But w- how how would you view a statement like that? Would you see it more like a state where you're completely free of coercion? And so problems are still very, very real, but but they're not a problem in the, in the normal yes. sense. Or um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how yeah. So, you think so that's that? a very good point because I think people get confused about what we mean with a problem, and the problem is just anything that, for example, we would like to do but we're not able to do, and yeah. that, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like you might want to learn to play chess because you're not able to play chess, and chess is a very fun thing. Uh, you know, it's it's fun to learn about chess if you're into that, of course. Mm. And th- there's yeah, there's no reason why a problem should be annoying. The problems can be amazing to work on. Scientists, I mean, I, when I do research, I enjoy that there is a problem to work on. I enjoy that there is something that I don't know about yet, but which I can discover. Uh, I mean, it would be very sad for me if if there was nothing left to discover. I would be yeah, I would not have anything to do in my research. And uh, that, that is purely a fun thing. It, it's, there's, there's nothing about that that is coercive or hurtful to me. 
it's good. It's good that there are problems like that. I mean, of course, there are there are also problems that are bad, like having the flu, which I, I think sucks. I think most people can agree sucks. And those kinds of problems will be fewer and fewer as we move to a better problem situation. So as as humans make progress, we make bad things better and the, and the, the bad things. So we, we make both the bad situations better and the good things better. And hopefully, I mean, maybe at some point there will no longer be any bad things or there will be very few of them. And I think that is, yeah, what you just pointed out, that, that is kind of the intuition that people have where they associate a problem with just the negative, the unwanted problems. And I mean, maybe those won't be, those maybe those won't exist anymore at some point. And and maybe in that sense, it can be kind of a nirvana or something. Yeah, without there being a situation in which people don't have anything to do anymore. But regardless, it is good to make that distinction. Like we, we're not, we're not, yeah, as you said, we're not just talking about the bad stuff. We're talking about everything that there is to do. Basically, anything that people can enjoy is enjoyable because there is something fun that they're learning about, they're solving, that they are putting their creativity into, and that, and all those things wouldn't be possible without problems. Yeah. But I want to just linger a little bit more on this Eastern take because mm-hmm. I, um, yeah, I, I used to be very immersed in it. And uh, sometimes there's an emphasis on in Buddhism, at least the popularized version. I haven't read any original text, but there's an emphasis on uh, how desire is a bad thing and a root of suffering to be attached to want something to desire something and many practices of meditation entail watching your desires come up and then not giving into them and seeing them evaporate again and there can be a very strong sense of contentment and well-being in seeing that what you find to be your strongest desires and preferences, they come and go and uh, you don't have to indulge them. But so what I'm having issues with, because I've had experiences like that where you can be very blissful and and I don't mean in a hedonistic way, but in an actual, mm. um, now with the Deutschen goggles on, I feel like I am being creative somehow in that. But is there a way to interpret what like like what role does preferences and wants and desires play for someone who is sitting and feeling amazing ignoring their preferences and wants and desires yeah the first thing that comes to mind is just that you're doing something like you're exploring your mind and you're you're exploring how it works and you're seeing in real time how preferences arise and then fade away again and you're getting a closer look at the mechanisms of your, yeah, yourself and your own functioning. And, and that could be very interesting. I mean, that's, that's my first guess. So I might have hidden problems in the sense of I, I want to understand my mind better. And that's another preference that I'm not uh, neglecting, even though it might be creeping in the back door or be subconscious or. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and minds are very complicated things. Like there's a lot of knowledge that we have is not, encoded in language for example there's sometimes we like if you if you're playing a sport then you're not constantly 
monologuing to yourself what kinds of moves you're making well say you're on you're playing football you're not saying to yourself okay i'm now going to run to that place so i can hit the ball at this angle you kind of just go i I actually do and i verbalize it so i'm very annoying (laughs) to play with (laughs) (laughs) nice but i mean even if you verbalize it to some extent it's not you can't verbalize everything you can't verbalize the the, there's always a point at which your verbalization goes over into intuition and yet that point where the intuitions are also real things like they're not just random wrinkles in your mind they're there for a reason and i can imagine that if you if you meditate then you focus on those more inexplicit types of ideas where you yeah you focus on the full set of entities that inhabit your mind which aren't just the words that you you hear yourself kind of mutter every now and then and i, I can imagine that is that, that can be very fun so that that is one guess what's going on there i'm not quite sure but that's mm. that's my best guess no i i think um because i just had um i sat for an hour today and i don't like the word meditation anymore because there are so many connotations and it's so in vogue and um I think it's used very frivolously as a stress ball of sorts, which is fine. Of course, that's fine. But I think there's, I, I just call it contemplation. And I just do the, I don't know if you're familiar with Naval Ravikant, the angel investor who, uh, he's fairly famous. And now he, he oh, recently Naval, fa- yes. yeah, yeah, he recently found the work of David Deutsch and is now, Promoting both Beginning of Infinity and uh, Brett Hall's podcast, TalkCast, yeah, as his yeah. favorite, favorites, yeah, which is I saw, awesome. I saw he was uh, promoting Brett, which is great. But that was fascinating. That's really fun. Super cool to Brett. I, Brett. Brett should, like, just a shout out to Brett. Brett has one of the best podcasts <laughs> out there. He's he great. Does. And is, so, so is his Twitter account. I love it and highly recommend it. I'm very excited for Brad. I'm very excited for the ideas because I think this will lead to them getting a, a broader exposure in more popular culture, perhaps. But he has a form of meditation where it's basically you sit for an hour, eyes closed, you do nothing. There's mm. no mantra. There's no focusing on your breath. There's nothing you have to do. You let the mind do whatever it feels like. And uh, to me, that feels like an extremely non-coercive and a fun exploratory thing to do. And so I did that today. And I don't know, there's something very freeing. And it, it feels like you're taking your the entirety of yourself seriously in a way you might not be doing in everyday life where you're uh, judging many things to be irrelevant or not important. Or, yeah, you seem to have more of a, a strong sense of, you have more of a conductor in the middle deciding authoritatively at least many of us, uh, what to do and what's right and wrong. And I, I, I think there's um, something very liberating in allowing whatever wants to come up to come up in a very uh, safe manner. But what I wanted to ask you was, I was, um, and this is slightly off topic, but I think it's interesting. It hit me that the, the experience we have of the world, everything in our experience is constituted by ideas in the broader term, right? Yes. Like I, w- I would include the perception of my body is a an idea complex, right? You could call it ideas, the, the feeling of having a body. Yes. And so it was just really interesting to sit and I had my wife running around 
doing things in the apartment. I was sitting against the wall like a lunatic and I tried to focus on like I've been taught by Michael Ashcroft who does the non-doing thing, Hmm. expanded awareness. And I, I tried to focus on the sounds behind me and I managed to get this expansive feel of I'm not in my body. My body is in the space of consciousness, which is so much more expansive than we tend to feel during a day where you can hear sounds so far back and get this expansive feeling of space being the space in which everything arises. And it was just really exhilarating for me with the risk of not getting to any particular point here just to realize that, okay, this is all ideas in the space of the mind working together this is my problem situation experientially. And it was just, um, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense at all. I just felt like it was an extremely uh, interesting feeling. And uh, it, it does actually make sense. And, I, and now that you're saying this, I'm kind of wondering, because it sounds a bit like a game. Like <laughs> if I'm listening to you saying that there's this constraint, which is you, you're going to sit down and then yes, you're, you're, going to observe whatever comes up for you and so you know like other games there's a constraint which you need to try and fulfill and yeah and so doing you're learning something about yourself i guess i don't know i'm i'm i used to be interested in meditation and things like that but i haven't been in a long time but it sounds interesting to me now that you say it uh i don't again i don't quite know what's going on but i think it is either that you're interested in learning about your own mind or Definitely. it's some kind of game or it's both and uh, i mean it, it can be interesting to become aware of things about yourself that you you hadn't noticed before uh, like uh have you have you read that book by uh, brian mcgee i think it's something like the big questions or something uh, let me see no. yeah so this is book by this is book by brian mcgee called ultimate questions and a part of the book is just about like how fallible we are and how often we you know we kind of think that because we're situated in in our own bodies that we we know what it's like to be us or that we know we know ourselves most intimately it, there's many things about ourselves that we don't know for example it is very alien for us to see ourselves from behind like you, you almost never you almost never see yourself from behind Unless yeah. you're looking in a mirror somewhere, and, and there's this incident in the book where, he, where Brian McGee talks about walking in Oxford. I think he's walking down. Uh, I forget actually where he's walking, but he's um, entering a cafe somewhere, and he kind of sees this image of a man with it's quite abdominous. He has this big belly, and he kind of goes, "Oh, this is a this is a rather you know huge fellow." And then he realizes that he's actually just seeing the reflection of himself in the in the mirror, <laughs> and that there's no. And he goes, wow, I, that, that's me. <laughs> and I wasn't aware of that that is me, that that's how I look. Uh, so, you know, I, I can imagine that what you're describing now is similar to that, where you kind of, you, know, you, think, you think you know yourself quite intimately because you, you're with yourself a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know how to put it better than that. But yeah, no. Uh, you, you nonetheless overlook many things about yourself because you they, they just haven't come up they just you know when when do you need to look at yourself from behind that that is never really uh, it's almost never necessary so you don't know how you look 
I mean, unless you do those, you know, uh, butt out and your head over your shoulder selfies that I'm sure you do a lot at, at your default program, uh, pouting your lips as well. That's, that's great for, for the paper. That would be like the front page. You and David. <laughs> you and David. No, <laughs> I'm sorry. But uh, so, um, no, but it's absolutely true what you're saying. And I think that. I used to be into philosophy of mind a lot, and I know that the uh, um, Thomas Metzinger, have you heard of him? A German philosopher. He was on Sam Harris's podcast. Yes, I believe I've heard of him. He's uh, he's doing some interesting research on the what he calls the phenomenal self model, uh, which is basically your sense of yourself, <clears throat> your brain's representation, conscious representation of itself in the world, mm. in the body, in the world, and. Uh, that that is an interesting thing to think about. I think that you feel, I would argue, uh, right now, you feel like you are someone inside your body, inside your head, and you're perceiving the world that is outside of you. And, and so am I right now. But you can shift this around to realize that, yeah, physically, that's probably what's happening. But experientially, phenomenologically, the feeling of your body and your head is inside the conscious awareness, not the other way around. And so they've done really interesting neuroscience experiments where a test subject is sitting on a chair. Speaking of this whole thing of, of seeing yourself from the back, you're sitting in a chair with a pair of VR goggles and they put a camera behind you, three meters behind you or something like that. And mm-hmm. so in the, you're sitting there seeing yourself from behind three meters in front of you. So you think you're sitting there. And then they scratch your back with a stick Uh, very rhythmically and after a little while you can feel like you're sitting three meters in front of yourself like your whole sense of where you are in space shifts to that new location yeah that kind of that kind of makes sense in in that you to to come back to the problem situation that's a case in which you have a new like you you always have the, the problem of what do i need to do next and how can i interact with the world and someone has just shifted your your viewpoint and, and therefore your problem situation immensely. And you're just mm. trying to build a new model such that you, you can now still navigate the world. And, and in some sense, that, that is also what must be going on for people without the video camera. Like, there is a way in which our biology has like wired our senses to our minds. There must be the equivalent of a control panel for our minds in order for it to kind of puppeteer our body. Or I, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but yeah, there is a, uh, a kind of an interface between our minds and our our body. And I think part of growing up, part of like very young children, are learning about how to to use that. And for us, it's second nature. It's it's kind of like when you know when when, when adults who've never played a video game before, try out the controller. Mm-hmm. And then they're very unfamiliar with it. Whereas children who are young and have played a lot with video games, they, they just use the controller like it's nothing. Like it's just, they're just navigating the virtual space. Uh, they don't even think about having a controller in their hands almost. Like they can forget about that. The equivalent of that must be what's going on for very young children where they're like the adults who are given the controller and they kind of need to learn how to use it in order to navigate the world. And uh, that made me think of 
what you were saying here, which is you're just changing how yeah you're situated, how or how you, how you view yourself, and that will change how you can interact. Uh, which means that you have to build new models, new new ideas about how to interact with the world and where you are and who you are and all those things. Yeah. Also, kind of a nice example of there being a real you, <laughs> like the your your visual input has been shifted. Like you're now seeing yourself from behind the because of the, there's this camera behind you, which, which you're using as your eyes practically. And yet, you know, you still have an understanding of that is really you in the seat. It's not another person all of a sudden because you're not, you don't have this model of I am the thing behind my eyeballs. You have a model of I am the thing that I can make move and that I can make do stuff. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting uh, point you're making there because in the meditative sphere and for instance, Sam Harris uh, and Metzinger, they talk about how you have no self and that this proves it because what you identify with is this pliable process of representing yourself that is as fallible as anything else. And so I guess you could, because when we speak of ourselves, we speak of ourselves not as the representation of ourselves, which I think would be uh, the natural conclusion since it's a representation of us. And you can't see yourself. I mean, the the Alan Watson, you can't bite your own teeth or kiss your own lips or whatever. But um, yeah, I like your implication much better. But they would use it as as uh, evidence for how the self is an illusion. Yeah. Um, why, why would it be? You're, you're sitting right there and you're still, you have a sense in which even though your perspective changes, there's a thing which remains constant, namely you. And you can identify yourself among even with the new perspective. Yes, and yet you have gotten a new insight into, we, we tend to identify with our representation. That is the, the whole, we're, we're glued to our self-models, as Metzinger would say. And mm. to me, and why I find this so interesting, I think, from the Popperian Deutschian perspective, is that it's the ultimate, ultimate sign of why empiricism is false and how fallibilism is true and how everything is models, ideas, guesses. Even the most strong sense of you is malleable and a guess. And I just find that exhilarating. And, and I, I think that's what mystical experience is uh, to a large extent. It's, it's just um, insights like this where, because you can lose that sense altogether of being anywhere in, in the space of consciousness, which is also... Very interesting, but I don't. Yeah, I don't think mystical. Mystical just means things we don't have good explanations for yet, things we don't understand fully yet. Yeah, and and also, well, in, in that case, I think there's a far better, kind of more mind blowing example of this, which is virtual reality, where you can feel like you're in a roller coaster, and well, and maybe it's not like a, a very faithful experience. Like you, you, you'd feel different in an actual roller coaster. But people feel a fear of heights when they're in VR. Yeah, yeah. And 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 also, you know, I can imagine that if you let someone walk around in VR and they have an avatar and they can see their avatar in mirrors in VR, then they they have new models of what they are as people because they think, well, that is still me in a way. I mean, it's just my avatar and I'm controlling it. But there's not really any difference between that and your real body. 
Like, yeah. and, and the other the other version of that would be us in the real world changing our faces, say, with with like science science fiction plastic surgery or something, where you know you can change your face to the point where you you just look like an entirely different person. You can look like the guy from the beginning here, the the robber. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, you know, disagreements are, are common. <laughs> uh, one of the many things we disagree about. One of the few, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so I I could look like that guy if I if I wanted to to, to kind of torment myself, or I I could look like someone else, and it's it's just my face. I mean, my face isn't the mind. Yeah, and I know uh, the same team, I think, uh, Metzinger's team, uh, have made studies on, I think, athletes or people, race car drivers, who can learn to incorporate their instrument, in this case, their uh, car, into their self-model, which is uh, mind-blowing to me. But it really shows mm. the, uh, the the scope of, of the mind, I think. In a very cool way. It reminds me of that uh, that episode of Rick and Morty where where Rick is he like transfers his consciousness into a pickle. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Pickle Rick. Yeah. Yes. And he just kind of manages to manipulate the world around him. And and the most important thing about Pickle Rick is that he's still a person. It doesn't really matter where a person is instantiated in. It's very unlikely that he. he person would be in a pickle or would be a pickle or something like that um which is why the whole thing is funny of course but anyway it's pickle rick is still a person he's still manipulating the world around him and, and and making it suit him better and that is you know that's what people do it also kind of shows that i mean in Pickle Rick's case, he, he starts out as a pickle, and then he very quickly finds out that he wants to have limbs, so he he creates artificial limbs for himself, and he evolves to to look more like humans do, because uh, that's just a, a design that suits him better. And I, I think that is very similar to what people will be going through, like... Mm. Imagine that as a kind of an accident of history, uh, a different kind of animal became conscious or became a person. Like you might imagine, like let's say that whales became people. Uh, <laughs> then you would imagine that they started very differently from us. But the more knowledge they create, the, the more like us they would become. The, the more they... Uh, maybe maybe a better example would be say that uh, I think this is actually an example Deutsch uses in a book. Uh, he, he says, imagine that dinosaurs became people, and uh, you know, so the comet that wiped out the dinosaurs in some branch of the multiverse n never did, and so uh, instead they evolved into people. Then initially their houses would look very different from our houses, <laughs> and. <laughs> uh, if, they, if they were to build cars, then their cars would also be very different from ours. But if they were to build computers, then their computers would be much more like our computers because they use much more fundamental theories about how the world works. And mm. they would slowly start to converge with us on 
these kinds of inventions. And then presumably at some point they would also start modifying their bodies and they would start modifying them into shapes that suit them better and which would suit them better for objective reasons. And which if, when we start modifying our bodies more substantially, we would also evolve into that direction. So we uh, would all kind of converge on an objectively good design for our husk, for our, our bodies over time. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really fun and interesting thought experiment with the dinosaurs there, because to me, it really uh, cements the idea that we are the program running on the hardware. And provided there is universal computation there and the right program, then a dinosaur could be a person. I really, uh, yeah, I like thinking about that. I'm going to let that percolate in my mind when I go to bed tonight and think about what that would mean. That would actually be awesome. I wish animals were people. I hope we we get to meet other people in, in completely different hardware sometime. That'd be interesting. Yes, well, and we know that they exist in other branches of the multiverse. Like we, we know that. Mm. How? There have to be... Uh, it's just by by probability. Like there, It is possible for animals to turn into people. And... I don't see any physical reason why other animals couldn't turn into people. Uh, again, oh, I think I should, so I should say that we, when we use the word people, we don't mean humans. We mean any anything capable of explaining the world around them. And so when we say dinosaurs turn into people, we don't say dinosaurs turn into human beings. We say, we mean that dinosaurs turn into thinking, conscious creatures. And... Uh, yeah, I don't see any reason why that couldn't happen to other animals. It's just that their genes need to use this as a, as a solution for a problem of replication. And yeah, I imagine that many other animals have become people in many other branches in the multiverse because very unlikely things, or even, I mean, in this case, I think it is just a relatively likely thing uh, must happen somewhere in the multiverse. It's also uh, the sense in which knowledge has structure over the, the different universes. So when the dinosaur, dinosaurs build computers that are very much like our own computers, those computers are very much like our own computers because they instantiate a lot of knowledge. They, inst they instantiate knowledge about physics, about quantum theory, electrons, uh, that our computers also instantiate. And mm. the the more knowledge something instantiates, the, the more it has structure in the multiverse. So in this case, the, the branch in which dinosaurs build computers is becoming like our own world in that, you know, there are now creatures walking and thinking and doing stuff and building computers, which are structurally, would be structurally very similar to our own computers. And the more knowledge we would create, the more and the more knowledge they would create, the more we start to converge on. Yeah, the more the the worlds become alike, because the theories are universal. Yeah, it's the theories are more universal. So you, our knowledge about how fundamental physics works, and or, or the knowledge we use for computers, is not easy to vary. It's it's there's no variations of. Uh, our, our knowledge about 
Turing machines that could be used to make something similar to the computers that we use. And that is why we know that the computers of these dinosaurs, of these alternative universe dinosaurs, must be very much like our own. And th this is the sense in which epistemology meets up with many worlds, because knowledge, when viewed from this kind of multiversal, multiversal perspective, becomes a very interesting and, and, and stable thing across different universes. If you imagine a gene, then a gene viewed from the multiverse is a very big object because it looks similar in the many alternative branches of the multiverse, despite the, the potentially different histories that exist in those different branches. So uh, it might be that the gene has been subjected to different circumstances, but because it contained knowledge, it was able to correct those, those uh, circumstances that occurred in its environment. Now, if, you, if you imagine an animal across the multiverse, then in some universes, or I, I kind of use these terms, universes or histories or branches interchangeably, uh, I don't really care about them. Physicists and ph philosophers of physics would find that annoying, but for the purposes of this conversation, I don't think it really matters. So if you imagine an animal in the multiverse, there, there might be, you know, you might have the animal in different universes subjected to different environments. Like, for example, the animal might uh, be completely safe in one universe, but it might be being chased by a predator in another universe. And um, if the animal instantiated a lot of knowledge, for example, knowledge about how to not be eaten by predators, then uh, despite the existence of the predator in the other branch, it will survive and it will be very much like the universe in which there wasn't a predator. So and, and in that sense, the animal looks the same over the different universes. But would it then be the same animal? Because, I mean, it would need to evolve uh, different genetic knowledge to survive the, the difference in circumstances. In this case, the predator or not the predator. Oh yeah, so I'm just imagining there's an animal at a particular time, like, you know, let's say that on Monday afternoon, the animal in one universe is safe and sound, and in, in another universe on that same day, it is being chased just because oh, of a, a so random it's the same niche. It's the same yes. niche. Oh, okay. Yes, it's, okay. Just, it's yeah. just the same time. You can, you can view the animal in different oh. universes at the same time, and then in, in one of the universes, the animal might be it might have a confrontation with a, with a predator. But if the animal instantiates a lot of knowledge, then it will outlive the encounter with the, the predator and be like, it, it won't be exactly the same animal as when it wasn't chased, but it will be roughly the same. So, and, and the other example I was going to use is if you say, if you have an accident, if you break your arm because of some probabilistic event, like you, uh, you, you happened to take a wrong turn somewhere and then you the car drove into you by accident or something like that. Um, an, an event which doesn't happen in every branch of the multiverse, then in those branches, you will, you know, your, your arm will presumably heal. You'll go to the doctor, maybe they'll, they'll fix you up. And then after a couple of weeks, your arm is healed and you are roughly the same as you would have been if you hadn't been hit by a car in that case in this in this kind of fictional setting and again that is a sign that 
there's knowledge creation going on, or that, that there is some knowledge about uh, either in the genes, because your body is able to repair uh, damage to your bones and to your, your body in general, and uh, knowledge in the institutions around you, because you went to a doctor and you, you know, presumably the person who drove into you uh, had to pay uh, insurance money to you and such things. And uh, all of that has the effect of making you more alike in the different universes. So that you are roughly the same, the same off in the universe in which you have been hit by the car and in the universe in which you have not been hit by a car. Because you are effectively converging on uh, objective truth in the knowledge you're creating. Yeah, and, and you, uh, the, the, you're correcting errors. You're correcting yes. mistakes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah. because you're correcting mistakes, the, the ways in which the universe is different from, different from one another is because random mistakes happen in the different universes and you're trying to correct for each of them. And that makes the universe more alike. No, I mean, I yeah, I really like this uh, way of explaining these things, and I um, I haven't read Fabric of Reality, uh, David's first book, for a while, but I I remember that one of my favorite parts, I think it's in the first chapter, when he speaks about the now famous uh, Winston Churchill copper atom uh, at the tip of the nose example uh, as a refutation of reductionism. And a very quick uh, recap of that, if you haven't heard it, but the idea is how do you best explain why there is a copper atom at the tip of the nose of the Winston Churchill uh, statue somewhere in uh, England? And his conclusion is that in terms of prediction, ultimate prediction is always bottom up and you can always talk in terms of particles and their movements. But if you want to understand uh, and not merely predict that the copper atom ends up there, you have to use much higher level uh, emergent uh, phenomena uh, to explain it, like people and war. Yes. And, and uh, so, so I, I, uh, I remember him speaking about how it's completely uh, fallacious to assume that the lower level has some kind of precedence when it comes to these things. And it's more important uh, in the hierarchy of explanation. And it might even be, because I feel like many people have this intuition that Atoms is somehow more serious of an explanation than thoughts or ideas. But there's no solid argument for why the lower level will just automatically be better. And there's nothing that says that the higher level explanations can also and do effectively play a role in the deterministic framework. It's not incompatible with determinism to say that thoughts and choices and dinosaurs can uh, uh, play a part there, can have an effect. And even that the loss of the higher emergent loss of epistemology, uh, abstract loss, or the loss of, yeah, biology, say, can constrain and dictate what the loss of physics can be. That doesn't have to go bottom up. It can also go the other way around. And they have to, um, I yeah, I just think that's an underemphasized point in a lot of discussions uh, within rationalism. So um, I appreciate yeah. you laying this out for us. Cool. Yeah, no problem. All right, folks, time for the fun stuff. If you enjoy my podcast and you want to support it, you can now become a monthly Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash do explain. 
Or if you'd rather make a one-time donation, you can visit ko-fi.com slash doexplain instead. That is ko-fi.com slash doexplain. Perhaps ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And surely Jesus would donate to uh, Do Explain. Another way to make the podcast grow and improve is to tell people you know who you think would enjoy it to check it out. Because with more support and exposure, I'll be able to improve the podcast continually and produce more content, which is something that I would love to do. Lastly, thank you so much to all of you who've donated so far. It truly means the world to me, and I want to extend my gratitude. Back to enjoying the show. Yeah, I mean, we we, uh, we we hit on a lot of interesting stuff there. Maybe it's a, a good segue here into um, mental illness, <clears throat> everything I've been talking about here. Uh, and the, the Thomas Sauce and his book, The Myth of Mental Illness. And I know that you have, uh, I, I had a psychiatrist on, uh, the lovely Dr. Michael Golding, last episode. And although we didn't speak at all about Thomas Sauce's and his view. I plan to have him on soon again to do so. And from what I've gleaned, he disagrees fairly strongly with Sauce's argument uh, that mental illness is a myth. And I'm not going to go into details here because I, frankly, I don't know what he thinks more than that. And uh, I do know that you are more sympathetic to uh, Sauce's argument. So I thought it might be fun to just hear yeah, what do you think about it? A, a pro saws argument before I have Golding on to uh, to criticize those ideas. So um, yeah, who, what's the main tenets of Sauce's ideas here, and uh, how do you view them? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I think Saz, I, I I still I have not converted to my pronunciation of his name, but I think it's Zaz. <laughs> I think so too. Zaz is cooler, but yeah, you know Zaz. <laughs> So, Sars' so main point, I think, is that behaviors cannot be equivalent to illnesses. That behavior is always judged with respect to a moral framework. And that uh, if you are a young child in the classroom and you're told you have ADHD, or sorry, ADD, if, you have, if you're told that you have ADD, then that is in some sense a moral judgment because it's a judgment about what you should be doing with your time and how you should be behaving. And it seems to me like Saz was, in a sense, fighting to defend morality and moral agency. And he wasn't necessarily disparaging the use of drugs. Like, if anything, it, it seems like Saz would really like people to be able to use drugs. Uh, that as, as long as people voluntarily accept that they or, or voluntarily want to use the drugs, he he's a he's a libertarian on that issue and seems completely fine with giving people whatever drugs they need. And I don't think he even disputes that they can be useful. It just he he disputes that there can be such a thing as a literal mental illness. That the, the phrase mental illness is, according to Sass, kind of like a metaphor. It's saying that just like you have bodily illnesses, there can be things wrong with your mind that make you behave in a way that you shouldn't. And he would, he would then say, well, this, this idea that you behave in a way that you shouldn't 
is laden with moral theories. Like you, the idea that as a child you shouldn't be running around uh, and, 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 and not sitting at a desk is a moral theory. And that, you know, those moral theories change over time. So what we now consider to be wrong behavior might in the future be considered completely normal, um, which is why uh, so one of my favorite examples that he uses in, I think it's myth of mental, myth of mental illness is uh, drapetomania, which is a mental illness assigned to slaves when they wanted to escape. So it was said that if a slave wanted to be free, he was said to have drapetomania and he was mentally ill. And you know now now that is uh, very disgusting to think about because that is a disgusting idea. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, th that was considered a real theory. It was considered a theory of, uh, of psychology, or at the very least, according to Sass. Mm. And yeah, there's an underlying mistake there, which is to confuse behaviors with illnesses. Like behaviors could be improved, but they're not illnesses. And minds cannot be sick, because minds, in a way, I mean, minds have the property that they always have problems. And that they, they can solve the problems that they have, either by, you know, taking medication or by other means, but they cannot be sick. That That is a category error. Right. I've read The Myth of Mental Illness years ago, and I have a very vague memory of it, but my understanding of it is that there are, yeah, the conceptual argument, like you mentioned there, Lastly, that yeah, an illness is just uh, something is wrong with the body or the brain. And so so what would a mental illness be? If we found something wrong with the brain, it would just be another illness, right? So that, that it doesn't make sense to talk about mental illness. Yes. Yeah, no, he talks about problems of living, rather. When, when you mention behaviors that, that we, we all have just, it's hard to live. We have problems of living. And uh, they're not illnesses, and our behaviors are our best solutions to those. And then he has the the anti-coercive argument of yeah, you, you, nobody should have the right to to uh, involuntary admission. The case against that that you, you, it's 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 a it's a way for psychiatry is a way to control people and institutionalize people who are not behaving the way we decide and deem to be uh, the right way to behave. That's my very limited understanding of his arguments. But but so how I think that the... What was the example you used of behavior? You said... Uh, well, there's, um, there's Trapezmania and then there's ADD. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, yeah, the slaves who wanted to run away. That feels like... And I'm sorry that I laughed at that, but it was just so uh, absurd of an argument. It used to be the case that if you were a woman and you were, you were feeling unwell, you were set to be Hysteric. hysterical. And and it, that that's also disgusting in the same way. But it, intuitively, I feel like these examples are somewhat low-hanging fruit, however, and, and kind of caricatures because you can... Um, and I'm working this out on the fly here. I'm, I don't have a strong position, but I think that, first of all, the, the, the anti-coercive, more the political argument might be more applicable, I don't know, 100 years ago or whenever uh, SAS was active. 
I, I think there there were more uh, bizarre methods and and uh, diagnoses and and maybe more of a usage of the the authoritarian and coercive element there. I, I don't think that that's the case today in the sense of I think that most psychiatrists don't want to coerce people. They actually want to help people. And I would like to talk about involuntary admission because I think there are cases where it's not as cut and dry. I think there are cases where not involuntarily uh, admit someone into a psych ward might be the immoral thing to do. And uh, and when it comes to the to, to, I, I mean, let's, let's use a more uh, concrete example of someone who has severe schizophrenia and delusions and having voices in their heads telling them to murder people, and they have. Would you say that his argument here would be that that behavior uh, has nothing to do with an illness? We should just judge it just like we would any other action as immoral. I'm not sure anyone has a good understanding of schizophrenia it seems like a very difficult phenomenon to, to understand and uh, it could be that it's similar to other brain diseases that's one one possibility yeah and, like Parkinson's oh, yeah I, sh- I should say I, I i agree with your point that if you discover something wrong with someone's brain like if someone has alzheimer's then that is a brain disease and it's a real problem for them and yes. it might be the medication uh, in the future will help in uh, resolve alzheimer's Alzheimer's, mm. just like other types of medication, it might might even be the case. It, it, I don't know much about this. That there are medications that solve problems for people with ADD, and then they should definitely take them if they do so voluntarily. And at the same time, it makes sense to say that they do not have mental illnesses, because that is like a metaphor. Even though you know, medication helps or could help. But what what is the because I feel like there's a danger here in there might be a use in differentiating between mental and physical illness in the sense of I was going to say something purely physical like the flu who doesn't strictly interfere with your ability to be rational. I, I would say in most cases it doesn't. It can, of course, affect your thinking because it creates a different sensational profile that makes you feel like shit. But I think there is a distinction to be made between an illness like that. And let's assume that Michael Golding's theory of schizophrenia is true, that it's the cancer of the mind and it's ultimately uh, where the mutation uh, of ideas, the conjecturing process, is creating problems and uh, involving too much randomness uh, for the selection and error correction to catch up, creating more and more uh, randomness and chaos in a way where their rational capacities are not there. So they cannot effectively create knowledge, and hence they are stuck or deteriorating. I think that is a yeah. different a different category, or at least should be looked at differently when we judge their behaviors, and maybe it could be useful to use the term mental illness there because the, the, the main capacity of our rational mind is, is not functioning. Yeah, um, I, I'm very open to that possibility. I, I don't, I don't quite understand the mechanism, but because, for example, I don't understand in what sense you would then still be a person. Uh, you're no longer able to correct your correct any mistakes that happen. If if your rational capacities completely break down, then in what yes. sense are you still a person? But but there are anti- but that's the interesting point because there are. 
biological intervention, sorry, physiological interventions that can restore this capacity, which makes it very morally interesting to me. I mean, there is a link between minds and the brain. Like if your brain is severely affected, uh, then you, know, you could you could lose your capacity to to make new memories, for example. And in that case, you know, there is a real question of how much like a person are you? And I, I think you would still be a person. You just have a very hard time making progress, but you might be able to figure out how to remember things despite your condition. Uh, this, this is kind of like that film Memento in which... I was just going to say when he writes on his body, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I thought That's was a cool. very interesting approach. Uh, yes. The film's kind of pessimistic, but, you know, you, he has a very rational approach <laughs> to his own memory problem and he writes down, he tattoos notes on his body so he doesn't forget them. And there might still be a way for him to function. That is part of a more general argument that Again, people have problems and they, they encounter problems. They can be very difficult to solve. But as long as people have the capacity to solve problems, they are people. And when they no longer have that capacity, they are no longer people. And I don't see the in-between. I don't see how you could, how your rational capacities could completely break down while still retaining your personhood. But what would that entail morally, you mean? Are you saying that they they then effectively lose their agency in the sense that we don't take them seriously and we can now involuntarily admit them and drug them to get out of the um, state? Um, no, I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm, I'm I'm keeping it more on the philosophical level of like, if you are a person, then you you can find solutions to problems and. Mistakes happen all the time in our minds. We were wrong about things constantly. And to me, these theories sound like there is a different kind of mistake that you can make, mm. which thwarts you and which prevents you from becoming or from solving anything else in your life or from even from solving that particular hangup. I mean, I find it an interesting idea that something like that could exist and Undoubtedly, uh, Michael has thought a lot about this, and more so than I. So I'm very curious what he will say. Uh, but me too. Yeah, I, I just don't see a way out there. I just I, it seems to me like either you are a person or you're not a person. And if you are a person, if you do have the capacity to solve problems, then you have to be rational, at least in some areas of your life, and you should you should be able to solve. Uh, in a way, everything is solvable. It doesn't mean it's easy to do so. It doesn't mean you will, will be able to do so in practice, but you could, there's a counterfactual, you could solve this problem that you have. I don't, yeah, I, don't, I just uh, don't see any other possibility there. Maybe Michael says, would say there, another possibility isn't necessary. Uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding his, his theory there. But this is how I understand SUS, is, is basically... Uh, that this idea of a mental illness is a category error. It's a very fascinating topic. I mean, it's very important in a world where we still have a lot of, and forgive me for using that term now, but we know what I mean by it, uh, a lot of mentally unstable or ill people then. 
people whose ability to uh, creatively and happily conjecture and criticize and, and has creating knowledge uh, is thwarted in different ways. And uh, yeah, I just find the, the topic very interesting and I, I, I'm going to dive deeper into it with Golding the next time I speak to him. But um, something that is uh, not directly related to this, but I feel like it could be a, a cool topic to end on here is a tweet of yours that I thought was brilliant and that I retweeted fervently. And it was, and I quote, the paradox of discussion is that ideas should be treated ruthlessly while people should be treated as politely as possible. Now, uh, it's fairly self-explanatory, but would you like to explicate a little how you think about that? It seems to be very, very actual in our culture right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, particularly today. Uh, yeah. The presidential election has just been called like an hour ago, and that's, that's been interesting to see unfold in real time. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, I, I think it's very important that, especially in discussions we have with people publicly uh, and even privately, that we are that we can be critical of each other's ideas. And the criticism is very often confused with being mean or with being nasty to other people. And it's not just confused by people who don't like the idea of criticism. It's also confused by people who, who do like the idea of criticism and they think that they they should be mean, they have an obligation to be mean, which I don't think is the case. Uh, I, I think that criticisms are best received by people who act kindly or by people who uh, are... Like you and I, you and I have a friendly conversation, and that makes being critical of each other's ideas easier, not harder. It's easier to be critical of each other if if we both are polite and and not rude to each other. And I, I think that was just what I was trying to encapsulate with that tweet by saying it's it's counterproductive to be rude to people because it will make it more difficult to be critical, or it will make it doesn't make it more critical, difficult to be critical, but it makes it harder for other people to think about your criticisms because you're you're thwarting them. You're being by being rude to them, you're coercing them to some extent. And therefore, the, the best possible environment to be critical of other people's ideas is an environment in which people are tolerant and polite. And and this is kind of paradoxical because you you also have to be you have to be able to to give your criticisms to other people. There has to be an environment in which people are accepting of you being critical, for example, in an open discussion with, say, people on Twitter. It shouldn't be received, it shouldn't be seen as a bad thing to be critical of ideas, but it should, it, uh, it isn't useful if that critical person is rude to people in the discussion, because that will distract from the topic at hand. Yes. And there's an additional issue here, however, where faulty epistemology creeps in because many people would equate being critical and being rude. Mm, and yes. now that can be a problem uh, both from the side of someone who thinks that 
oh, it's my duty to be critical all the time, so I'm going to be a mean asshole because I'm, I'm doing good, so I can treat them however I want. And from the side of the people who merely want to sound smart or be accepted, uh, have their friends agree with everything they say, which seems to be a very common position to take where, yeah, when, when, when people haven't grappled with the idea that to make progress, we have to correct errors. And that's how we make progress, not by justifying everything we think. And we have the phenomena like confirmation bias, which we're all familiar with, the tendency, and I, I mean, I do this too, the tendency to look for uh, supporting evidence, quote unquote, for what you already believe to be the case or the theories you already adopt. And um, yeah, there, there, there's, I mean, the, the, for me, the purpose of a conversation, and this has shifted fairly recently, is not mainly to persuade or to learn by exchanging ideas, but it is to have fun exchanging ideas yeah. like I'm having with you now. Yeah. And you and I think it is fun to criticize each other and battle it out and, and grapple linguistically and conceptually. It's fun. But ma many times people just want to relate to each other. And that's a different, that ties back to what we said about the problem situation being the most important thing here that determines uh, what is m most likely to go well in, in this sense, in a conversation. Do the people uh, just want to relate to each other, which they can do I can, for instance, I have my parents are uh, not both my parents, my mom and her husband are extremely religious and they mm. want to talk about everything in the context of Jesus and the love of God. And I used to push back on that really hard all the time and it ruined all family dinners. And not to say that I, sh I I'm not adopting it. I'm not letting them get away with anything, but it's more a matter of maybe ignoring when they say something like that in, instead of engaging with uh, those arguments every time and just seeing it as, okay, they are happy saying these things. Tonight, we just want to be together. We haven't seen each other in a long time. What's the best way to relate here? Is it to actually go into why God can't possibly exist or why there are no, why there are no convincing arguments that he should exist, rather? Or is it just to smile and say that these potatoes are great and, and change the topic or... Yeah, I don't know if I'm 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 making any sense here, but I think it's very important to 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 both to learn that and for each individual to understand that we have to be able to divorce ourselves from the ideas. We cannot attach to and identify with our current ideas because as we know, ideas are meant to be exchanged for better ideas all the time if we want to make progress. And nobody wants to be wrong longer than they have to like Sam Harris usually says. And uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think life is much more fun if you see conversations of this sort as, okay, we're just throwing out ideas into this space of common space of shaping the ideas together. And then we see if we can both leave with better ideas than we had before instead of, no, no, it's you and me as people and our identities battling out who's right and wrong, who's better, who's worse. It's just such a loose, loose game. I don't know what you win by making someone else feel really deflated and unworthy. And uh, yeah, how good do you really feel when you feel superior 
in an argument. I don't know. It's also somewhat misunderstanding the nature of argument because we're not supposed to be able to convince each other that that's too high a standard. Like, as you said, there's, there's many reasons to have conversations with people. One of them is to have fun. It's an important one, maybe the one of the most important ones. Yes. And uh, you can have interesting conversations, critical conversations about topics that fascinate you in a fun way. Uh, also, when you have an encounter with people you disagree with, you don't necessarily want to change their mind. You you want to engage with their worldview. You want to see how they resolve certain issues. You can be interested in, in the internal logic of their worldview. And, you know, those are all discussions. They're in, in, in a sense, they're critical discussions because you're looking at the logical content of their ideas uh, but none of that means that you you know you set out to convince another person. Yeah, that's that, that's that's a mistake uh, that people make who are epistemologically kind of pessimistic. They they think that <laughs> people are 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 stuck in a framework. For example, they, they they believe that there's no possible way of convincing one another, but that's really too high a standard. It's, the point of discussions is just to raise interesting issues and to, to have fun. Usually. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, persuasion, if both parties are, for instance, I have a, a friend who was on the podcast, actually, Merrick Doyle, who is not persuaded by the the universality of the, the um, idea that we are universal explainers and that that transcends all genetic imperatives, ultimately, or even at all in practice. So we have uh, oftentimes l- long discussions about this, long arguments, but, but the purpose is that both of us are interested and intrigued by the whole idea of maybe being persuaded by the other person or persuading the other person. And, and then it, it is yeah. fun in the end. So that's a different situation. But if you go into it with the idea that I have to persuade every person I talk to that what I think is right... Then that can make for that, that can really suffer the flame, uh, suffocate the flame of fun. Yeah, but so you mentioned something there that I actually want to ask you about. Then that makes us come full circle a little bit. Uh, the myth of the framework, the whole idea of that book, as far as I remember, is that myth is that people who don't share the same uh, worldview or the same conceptual framework cannot talk to each other, cannot make progress. So. Uh, can you give a little summary of that, of what Popper's argument is there? Popper basically says that people hold each other to too high a standard if they demand that they change their worldview immediately after a single conversation, or even just at all. Like um, we, we, we don't necessarily need to change our minds after a conversation. Uh, he, he has a very nice anecdote. Uh, it's a... It's a well, it's not an anecdote, it's a story told by the Greeks, and I forget the names of the people involved, but Popper recounts this tale of a wise man introducing one tribe to another tribe, and then the wise man asks uh, the tribe members of one of the tribes, is it not true that you burn your deceased? If you... If, if, someone has died in your tribe, then you you burn them. 
uh, to honor them? And then the answer, yes, yes, that's true. We burn them to honor them. And uh, we would feel disturbed by anyone not partaking in this tradition. This is the only way in which we think you can honor the dead. And then he turns this, this wise man to the other tribe and says, it's not true that you eat the, uh, the remains, the physical remains of uh, your dead. And then they say, yes, yes, we eat the remains of our deceased fathers. Mm, yeah. and, and, and of course, both tribes are discusses with one another. They are disturbed at each other's traditions. And, and part of the story is that they're kind of equally disturbed. So the people who eat the dead in order to remember them are disturbed by the fact that other people don't do this. And the uh, Naturally, yeah. the other tribe is disturbed by the fact that, as, as, as we probably are, the fact that those tribe, those other tribe members, eat dead people. Yeah. And part of what the wise man in the story is trying to point out is that to the people in the to these tribe to these tribal members, that seems like an unbridgeable conflict that seems like a thing that they cannot resolve that's just a fundamental difference between themselves and the the, the people of the other tribe and, and and that's kind of the myth of the framework this idea that you know therefore they are inevitably stuck with that idea and they they can't change it they can't come to any agreements and that's really imposing too high a standard because for one thing it it was probably a very valuable lesson for the people in these tribes to have learned that other people have different traditions mm. and can feel very strongly about their traditions, even though we think that those traditions are gross. And that kind of conflict is very useful. It's, it's, it's part of science. In science, there are usually different groups of people, different kind of subcultures within the scientific community who are proponents of competing of, of, of rival theories and whenever they these subcultures meet there there's a discussion that ensues and it might not be the case that the members of the subcultures relent and kind of go oh yes i you know you're right i was wrong about all of my positions and i think that you uh that your theory is much better than mine, um, although that does sometimes happen. But the, the important thing is that there's a clash of these different theories. And it's this culture clash, which has been an enormous engine of science. And, and, it's, and to say that uh, people aren't rational because they they can dogmatically hold on to worldviews is, is, is wrong. For one thing, you know, Scientists are somewhat dogmatic, and, and for good reason. Like, if there is a problem within a current, with in one of our best explanations of the world, then uh, we are somewhat justified in being dogmatic and saying, "Well, maybe there's just a solution to this problem within the theory as it currently is. We don't necessarily need to replace it with an entirely new explanation." Hmm. And that is a kind of dogmatism, as much as religious dogmatism is dogmatism. It's we're trying to hold on to our theories. But uh, it's not irrational. It's not irrational to try to defend theories and, and see if 
the criticisms leveled against the theory are necessarily fatal. Uh, it's kind of, in, in fact, it's important that people defend theories so that they can be properly tested, so that you can see how useful they are by, not just by people criticizing them, but by people trying to refute the criticisms. Now that, that's where the theory is really tested. And that's part of the, yeah, part of what the scientists, part of the obligation that the scientist has towards his, his fellow scientists is, I think, that he has a critical attitude towards the ideas of, of his fellow scientists, that he can point out uh, potential mistakes and problems within other theories so that they can uh, either be resolved and one gains a deeper understanding of the theory or be replaced by a better theory. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with your sentiment here and I'm going to be a, a, a stickler for words and, and go against what Popper said of definitions there and just say that I, that I I don't know if I would call the attitude of wanting to defend our best explanations fervently dogmatic because I think inherent in the 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 usual definition of, of dogma is to hold hold a belief uh, without question it's, it's like blind faith you don't want to criticize it and you don't even have to defend it it just is true and it's you're going to hold it as true which neither of us think that the the scientists are doing i would presume but um you will in, in some sense i mean they are kind of they, they, there's no justification for them holding on to their theory in the sense that you know, they just guess that, that the theory is right and that they should hold on to it. Well, if they don't have a better alternative, I meant. But uh, maybe, yes. maybe we're talking past each other a little bit. But no, I mean, it's. Um, I, th I think this conversation has been a great... It's been a great example of a fun conversation involved some persuasion and some uh, some arguing back and forth but i had a great time talking to you sam even though you are robbing liquor stores left and right yeah and yeah. <laughs> important differences between between <laughs> myself and the people and the, and the fact that itself exists but at least you're not mentally ill we've established that that is that is a chimera but uh no so so you're always welcome back i hope this is not the last time we talk on to explain and uh yeah you're, you're amazing. I love speaking to you. Thanks a lot. Cool. Yeah, no, thanks for having me.